ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. As those last chunks of coronation quiche slowly dissemble in your fridge, it's time to turn our minds back. Back to a time when royal cuisine was a little less mamby-pamby. Back when kings filled their no-doubt golden dishes with things of blood and teeth. At downside, this was food that could kill. How very royal. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint for Living. Places, spaces, food, gardens and design. This week, taking a long, hard look at possibly the most disgusting feast on Earth, the lamprey. Uh, They're all teeth and blood and a certain slippery beefiness. Uh, But the question is, did eating lampreys kill Henry I? A deep dive into lamprey land shortly, uh, with a recipe, of course. And Colin Bissett takes us to Turin to see the architecture Nietzsche loved best. But first, what if demolition meant not waste, but revival? A building's demolition it needn't be all skips and landfill. I'm about to explore an exciting project that turns waste into whatnot. I'm here in uh, in Collingwood. Me and the man with the song over there. At a place, it has a mission statement as you walk in that says, our mission here is to make it easier than ever for you to repurpose existing materials into new design and construction projects. If your project involves demolition, we invite you to use this space free of charge to store demolished materials while your project comes to life and repurposing those materials becomes possible. That's a bold initiative. <laughs> the, place, the place is called Revival Projects. It's about reducing carbon, reducing waste, reducing deforestation, reducing transport and consumption. Uh, founder of this enterprise is over the other side of this expansive, cluttered, glorious warehouse space. Building itself is a wonderful example of, of, of repurposing. But the, the idea behind all this came from this man, Rob Neville. Hello. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm I'm impressed and amazed. Oh, great! Such a great idea, and such a great place to sort of bring it to life. Mm, yeah, it's um, there's a lot of exciting initiatives happening here. So tell me about that. I mean, I'm knocking something down. I don't want to just send all that to the tip. I want to save those materials, repurpose those materials. What do I do next? Uh, well, I guess at the moment it's it's pretty difficult to repurpose materials on any scale. Um, storage and timing is a big problem. Um, and our typical approach to new design and construction isn't really geared around being really resourceful. Mm. And so I think the what we bring to the table and what we use this space to make easier for people is just to, is resourcefulness in one word. And so this space is full of resources, um, ready to go back into the sites that they came from. So show me your thing, tell me its provenance. Okay. Um, well, these materials that you can see in front of us have come from a building in Melbourne, uh, CBD. A little pile of wood. Yeah, it's a, it's a, another pile of wood, yeah. 
um, it started as quite a bigger pile of wood and as we worked our way through it uh, manufacturing a joinery package uh, the piles gradually transformed from 150 year old material through to beautiful finished um, joinery so how does that transform okay so we have the pile of wood in front of us which is neat and tidy as far as these <laughs> things go where do i find the joinery show me that so all of these pieces here are tables um, that are going into a pub which is on the ground floor of this project um, it's just across the road from queen vic market it's the new home for the uh, australian nurses and midwives uh, foundation and um, on the ground floor there's a, a pub there's always there's been a pub there for a long time uh, but there's redevelopment taking place over the last sort of 12 months and they're reinstating the pub on the ground floor in the basement so the original building is from late 1800s and these are floor joists that you can see here that are stained and patinaed uh, they've obviously been there for 140 150 odd years and uh, we managed to get involved at the right juncture and inspect that existing structure um, before demolition commenced and provides some uh, ideas on how those materials might be handled and repurposed. The tabletops look magnificent. They, they come into squares or circles, those, those old timbers joined together, beautifully finished. I, I can I just imagine putting my schooner down on that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. That's the idea. What, what might have happened to that wood normally? Normally, it would have gone to landfill. Uh, these particular materials weren't what you'd describe as easy to deconstruct and resell. Broadly speaking, the typical approach when it comes to demolition of ex existing structures, if there's perceived value of ex certain existing materials and it's relatively easy and doesn't take any time for the demolition crews and the builders to take those materials and sell them on then that happens but if it's not easy to deconstruct them mm. um, the fastest and most cost-effective approach is the norm and that just means destruction of them and so you end up with a lot of destroyed resources going to landfill um, I'm certainly not painting a picture that the demolition crews or the principal contractors are the bad guys no well they're fighting cost they're fighting time all those pressures that's it yeah, there are no bad guys. We're all working in an existing set of infrastructures um, and typical processes, and there's a lot of commercial pressure to be the fastest and be the cheapest. And so what when we suggest ideas around reuse, it's quite disruptive. And mm. one of the first things that we generally need to do to bring our ideas to life is to demonstrate the commercial upside of using existing resource. Okay. So in a project like this, it was actually really easy for us to do an inventory of those existing materials and provide uh, insights as to the commercial cost to go and buy equivalent resource um, and provide guidance on how they might be deconstructed and stored ready for reuse and provide insights to the cost of going and purchasing new construction materials to manufacture um, what they needed, what they wanted to put into the new development. Those three tabletops over there, uh, how they're gonna be finished, um, yeah. just on that particular project. Um, they look great. So we're a principal contractor on a project around the corner 
uh, on Easy Street in Collingwood. It's a really interesting site. It's the it was the home of PBS Community Radio Station for yep. 25 years. They've since relocated right across the road to Collingwood Yards. But the building that they were in for a long time, uh, we are renovating, and I describe it as the poster child of adaptive reuse. Um, it's a, a, a really wonderful example of utilizing all the existing resource you have and the existing building you have. Mm -hmm. The investment by the client, which is Bar Studio, who are a design interior design studio, uh, the investment they've made in sticking with the existing structure and bringing it up to modern standards of compliance and efficiency is unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. And so we've actually been on site for over a year now. Um, from the outside, the building looks very similar to what it did when mm. we commenced construction. So that sort of um, Collingwood fabric and that the urban landscape hasn't really changed. Um, but internally, it couldn't be more different. Um, this, what we're looking at here, is one of the condemned columns. So it was a two-story building and the entire first floor was held up by these incredible Jarrah That's an amazing posts. piece of wood. Yeah. So this is undoubtedly old-growth Jarrah timber yeah. from Western Australia. Jarrah is endemic to WA. So it's, it's important with something like that to give that the longest possible life now that that, that tree has been taken. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, we, we, one of our taglines is first do no harm, meaning, you know, if you need to deconstruct or remove a material or a structure, a structure or cut down a tree, um, you need to do the most appropriate, best thing you can do to honour those materials. And a lot of the time when we look at timber like this, which has come from old growth forests, you know, it's understandable for someone to make the point that they never should have been cut down in the first place. Sure. And so we sort of see it as a really special opportunity to instill some kind of distinction between us and the men that harvested or never should have been harvested. And, and honour that tree. That's right, yeah. What, what, are you, what are you making from it? Um, so this is actually sort of set out like this for a reason. It's a sequence so of events here. You've got a, a snapshot of the um, rotten... The, bo the bottom of the rotten post yep. uh, where it was in the dirt and we didn't realise they were rotten until we excavated the ground floor slab mm. for services but when we exposed it to the air um, some of them started to disintegrate rapidly um, and there was movement in the floor that they were holding up so um, the, the building was actually it was condemned and we propped it up and made it safe and we began the process of removing the timber columns and uh, installing new structural steel to hold the building up. Mm -hmm. So we salvaged every column and e even every rotten post. On these pieces here you can see that the rot only goes for yeah. the first sort of two centimetres and these are a 200 by 200 post. So these are sort of samples showing um, a, a cross section of that timber and you know at first glance that might look like waste like it could be thrown away. We've cut these tiles out of it to show... Um, Trimming you know, off that, that rotted exterior. Correct. Not much has to be done to make... That's, that's what I would describe as raw material once again. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that's hold a, held a building up for a hundred years. Good job. And within a few <laughs> cuts, it's ready to be raw material again. Um, th yeah, that's, that's... There's quite a special transformation in that there's a special magic in that yeah yeah that's exactly how i'd describe it it is magical 
Um, and so this piece of furniture here, this is a prototype of a vanity unit that we've made. From these timbers? That unit there is half of a column and this is a prototype um, designed by Bar Studio in collaboration with Revival using the, the condemned uh, column and this is now what we're, man we're manufacturing uh, many of these to feature in the bathrooms throughout the new development. And so those actually really wonderful That's aspect cool. of the story. Yes. The vanity will be within five meters from where the column where originally stood. stood for the last century. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we're 900 meters away from site here in our workshop. So if you were to try and sort of calculate uh, a footprint yes, in terms of creating something new <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, something new for your new design, uh, I'd say that's about as close as you can get to zero. There was, of course, that original trip from Western Australia, but we, <laughs> we, we, we yeah. that, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so it must be important as you did there, to, to get in early on these things, to have an ear for what's going on, yeah. uh, to have those conversations as quickly as you can. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. Timing um, is key for initiatives of reuse to be uh, feasible. It often comes down to timing. What I found over the last five or six years is uh, at first, you know, I'd, I'd get talking to people in the industry, developers and architects and owners, and I might get a phone call saying, oh, uh, well, demolish, demolition's already happened. Come and grab this stuff today before it goes to the tip. Yep. And I'd have to, you know, there was a, if I couldn't move immediately and, and mobilize and get trucks organized or whatever was required, then the opportunity would be missed. And gradually, as we've been delivering initiatives across the city, I found that the timing of which I get that phone call is uh, it's becoming earlier and earlier mm. and now the phone's ringing saying hey we're thinking about buying a site okay um, come and have a look before yeah come and have a look um, because that becomes part of the equation then on their development cost yeah that's exactly right we can help them understand the feasibility of reuse if we get involved at that right juncture then the strategy of reuse informs concept design and informs approach to construction we can underpin all the subcontracts, whether it's with the demolition guys or the builder. Um, you can embed the strategy of reuse contractually and into the design before things have gone too far down the garden path that everything becomes a battle. And I mean, you're looking, I, I would imagine, primarily around the older parts of town. And I mean, what's, what, what's the percentage? What, what's the sort of percentage return on a, on a typical building? I mean, how likely is it that you will find the sort of materials that you can do something with? Uh, it's immense. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's. I reckon it's. Um, I would describe it as uh, this. If, if we look at a situation appraisal and the scope of opportunity of reuse in a city like Melbourne and Sydney, for that matter. I think um, there's not a very high degree of awareness around what we already have um, in front of us um, that offers incredible potential for sustainable initiatives through design and construction. And so by that, um, just to expand on that, uh, Melbourne and Sydney were built out of timber and brick. Mm. Uh, they were the primary construction materials for over a century. Anything right up until the late 1900s is very similar to the building that we're standing in here. It's, it's brick walls and timber roof and timber subfloor. 
concrete wasn't a big player really until later on in the 1900s. And so the remarkable thing about timber and brick is that it can be a structure like this for a hundred years and in a matter of minutes it can be, the bricks can be cleaned or the timber can be denailed and it is raw material ready to use again. And I just, when I say that sort of like there's a low level of awareness of that, um, I think we've, as a culture and as an industry, we've kind of become conditioned um, and we've been sort of uh, educated that linear consumption is, is the norm um, and there's been no real demand to start a design development process by saying what are the resources that I've already got mm. that I can use to bring to life whatever it is that I need. And that certainly sounds like the language of our moment um, to, to make those sorts of jumps yep. of thinking that's, that's yeah for, for obvious reasons we're becoming increasingly keen on that kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing everything. We've, we're working with Monash University, Melbourne University, uh, RMIT, people, you know, people who prepare curriculums for tertiary across Victoria have come down to this space and we're speaking mm. with them. So we're trying, we're channeling a lot of energy into bringing this discussion and these initiatives into the minds of tomorrow's leaders. How do you get past the, the thing, okay, so here we have this building of brick and timber, as you say, and it's... This, this warehouse which was built when do you think this is about 100 years old yeah. workshop. reusing those materials does that does that bind you into sort of similar construction processes no definitely not this isn't really what i would describe as an efficient design we're looking at a massive roof structure with a huge amount of open space hard to heat <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah definitely hard to heat in the winter in the summer it's hard to cool down it's like a huge greenhouse um but you know this uh this style of roof truss um uh, was all we all that was sort of um known at the time these are single span timbers 20 meters long they're the biggest timbers i've ever seen in my life what sort of timber is it it's douglas fir commonly known as Oregon, mm -hmm. and these would have come from North America, almost certainly, by boat and up the Yarra, and here to Collingwood, horse and cart. What a world mm. that, that was with these materials, these substantial materials, because they're naturally sourced, coming from all over the place, mm. and the, the vast transport of them. Yeah, uh, it's just unfortunate that the destruction of the forests around the world has just gone so far before people are really standing up and trying to do anything about mm. about it and yeah we, we get to handle these materials which are incredible but ultimately we know that they never should have been harvested and so yeah you're right i mean the, to transport materials that far around the world by boat there's a I guess there's a, a level of energy channeled into that, which is commendable. Um, but yeah, the yeah, fact that is utterly destructive. Yeah, yeah, it's a, and it, you know we haven't stopped, you know, mm. and so that's. I think that's that's possibly the, the more telling point that knowing what we now know. Yeah. Uh, and and having the capacities we now have, we continue to behave in the same way. Yeah, yeah, it's frightening. So tell me more about these trusses. We're, you were describing the structures here. Yeah, so just in incredible pieces of timber. Um, we're collaborating with the architect who's engaged for the future development on this site. 
Um, and that architect is Grimshaw, and they're an incredible um, partner for us. Um, highly motivated to incorporate sustainable initiatives into their designs, and that's half the battle. You know, we're not convincing mm. a design team of any ideas. You know, they're they're right on board on with board. it. And they're pushing it themselves. Um, so we're working strategically with them to identify the most appropriate um, future applications for these materials on this site. And so the demolition of a building like this to preserve those materials, is that a matter of unpicking it piece by piece? Yeah, I would say deconstruction is, is a better okay. word than yeah. demolish. Yeah. This is quite a simple structure, you know, it's put together. You can see, you can see the um, steel brackets and ties and connection points. Um, it's a big scale. Um, so obviously there's, there's, you know, there's a bit of a methodology and, and a lot of planning that goes into how to do it safely. Um, but it's, it's certainly not, um, you know, any science or challenging sort of um, process that we can't undertake quite easily. Not only is your technology circular, Rob, but it's also new. You, <laughs> you've gone digital. Yeah, we have gone digital. <laughs> Tell me about your app. So we've launched an app called the Revival Cooperative and it's to help change the juncture at which we manage waste. Um, I describe it as a community-led solution uh, and it just provides a platform for people to upload resources that they have no use for uh, and connect with other people in the community um, who might have a use for them. So I've got this thing, I put it up on the app and people who might want that thing can come and see it. Yep, they can uh, register interest on the app. Nothing's for sale on the app. Uh, everything about the app is free, actually. Mm. It's free to download, free to use, and nothing that gets uploaded on there is for sale. It's all for free. And um, I guess you could say, generally, we find that um, nobody likes throwing away something that they think yes. could still be Somebody useful. Somebody must be able to do something with this. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, often in those scenarios, you hold on to it for a year or five years, it sits in the shed and then you have a clear out. Maybe it goes out on the street into hard rubbish or maybe you take it to the tip. So the app is designed to really tap into that, connect with the whole community and facilitate resourcefulness. Mm. I, uh, the app, it, we designed it to transcend industry. Um, it's certainly, we launched it in January and over these last few months, we've the primary users seem to be in design and construction. I, I guess that's a reflection of who we're rubbing shoulders with as an organisation. So when I say change the juncture that we handle waste, um, if, you are, if you need to get rid of something and you handle it in the moment as waste, uh, the most common outcome is, is landfill. Yeah. It's thrown away. You know, it's rubbish. It's waste. Um, but... Um, we, we believe that if you can bring that juncture forward and actually put it out there and, and um, connect with a community and say, hey, I've got no use for this, I'm, I need to do something with it in, say, three months' time, we'll see some incredible collaborative outcomes that could have never been predicted um, on your own. You know, you're not flying solo in your assessment yes, yes. of what is waste. Yeah. And uh, we, we found that as an organisation, we like to think of ourselves as quite resourceful and creative on how existing resources can be utilised. Um, but we had a few experiences uh, last year where um, people actually 
contacted us asking to use come down to our building sites or come to our workshop and use some of the things that we thought were definitely waste uh, like our offcuts or the broken bricks that we couldn't repurpose um, that project on easy street that i mentioned the, the old pvs building it's a wonderful example there we've repurposed tens of thousands of bricks on that site and as part of deconstructing bricks and repurposing them there's invariably broken bricks uh, mm. that come about in the process and I thought there wasn't much I could do with them and I put the I was putting them in a big pile and um, there's a very passionate local ceramicist <laughs> called Georgia Stevenson and she set up an initiative called Breaking Ground um, which is a it's a study driven initiative and she really explores possibilities for using resources that are considered to be waste in her ceramic craft and she asked if she could come down and have a look and she took away broken bits of concrete and um, broken bricks and really just rubble um, and she started crafting the most beautiful ceramics out of it and now you know we've sort of gone on a bit of a journey together and you know the cups in our kitchen for example here are all made out of waste from that Collingwood site um, and ceramic cups that she's made and so there was a few scenarios like that where we had our eyes open to the fact that oh, the war on waste isn't going to be solved by any one organisation or, or one individual yeah. and the power of community and the wonderful diversity um, and variety of projects and initiatives and uses um, that, that flourish in a community if we could tap into that power with this really simple tool like the app we've created then the outcomes we would see um, well what we're, what we're seeing over these last three months is that people all over the country are uploading resources onto the app and other people are seeing it and going and picking it up and we're getting all sorts of wonderful messages about the the ways that people are using these resources and messages about the volume of landfill that people were able to uh, avoid creating mm. um, so it's definitely working and um, great idea it's exciting to watch there's no yeah. there's no budget for marketing it or when we've got nothing to sell it's just here there in the world it's there it's we you know <laughs> almost rationalize it as an investment in the industry um, and yeah if it's if we're right in our theory that um, the power of community will uh, will change the way that we handle waste like this and, it, and if we've made a, an effective tool then uh, I'm sure we'll see it flourish Rob, thank you Thanks Jonathan It was the biggest environmental rally in the country's history Four decades ago the Franklin River blockade captivated and polarised the nation I'm Joe Lauder. Join me to relive all the plot twists and find out why it still matters so much today. If enough people stand up, we can win. Dig. Saving the Franklin. Sundays at 9.30am on ABC RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Now, if I said to you that uh, King Henry I of England was killed by ancient blood-sucking parasites... I would probably capture your attention. Uh, would I, however, be speaking the truth? The parasite in question, uh, well, it's not quite that. We'll come to this. Uh, we're talking here about the lamprey. It's a rather ugly, toothy, 
eel-like blood-sucking fish kind of thing, we'll pop a picture of the creature in question on the blueprint page at the Radio National website for your edification. And as a thing has been eaten since Roman times, still a delicacy in much of Europe, uh, you can even find them in our very own Murray River here in Australia. But overconsumption of the lamprey may be an issue, and that may have done Henry I, or did it? We will investigate with someone who has looked deeply into the, the monarch's diet. Judith Green is her name, Professor Emeritus at Edinburgh University's School of History, Classics and Archaeology. She joins us now. Judith, welcome. Thank you. The lamprey, curious beast. Could you give us a, a quick description? What are they? How old are they? What do they do? Well, they're very old. You'll understand that I'm a historian, so if I get the details wrong, you'll forgive me. Fish is not your strong suit. We understand that. (laughs) They look like horrible eels with a sort of circular mouth with teeth in, and they're jawless, which is very interesting. And biologists get quite excited about this because they're extremely, it's an extremely old species, and there's a fossil being discovered recently in South Africa, over 360 million years old. So that puts them before the dinosaurs. So they really are a very ancient type of uh, fish, and they are technically vertebrates, but they don't have a spine. They have sort of cartilage. So that's what they are, and they look pretty horrid. It appears, though, to be a, a recipe for evolutionary success. That's an extraordinary track record. Yes, indeed. And there are learned articles about how they got from there to sort of here and and escaped what happened to the dinosaurs and so on, and and how the different species, including the ones in the Murray River, evolved to take advantage of different situations. And that word, lamprey, what's the origin of that? It's not terribly clear. The usual explanation is that it comes from the Latin lambere to lick and petra, a stone. But it came into English through Old French. And the Latin word actually is neither of those. It's it's um, morena. And that's how it's usually translated, as indeed in the account of Henry I's death. Well, let's jump to Henry I, the son of William I, William the Conqueror. What else do we know about Henry I? He had more illegitimate children acknowledge than any other king of England. Good Lord. Uh, more than Charles II, over 20. He reunited England and Normandy, which his elder brother, Robert, had taken Normandy. But Henry defeated him in battle and put him in prison for the rest of his life. He integrated the north of England, where the Normans were still very thin on the ground, into the rest of the kingdom. And he was called a lion of justice because of his very firm, not to say savage rule. He became king, what, about 1100? Is that? Yep, that was, he just happened to be in the New Forest when his elder brother, William Rufus, got shot by an arrow in a hunting accident. So Henry just happened to be there and rode quickly off to secure the treasure and then went to London and got crowned. Are you suggesting foul play? Some historians do believe that it was foul play. He certainly was the person who benefited because the eldest of the three brothers, Robert, who was the Duke of Normandy, was coming back from the crusade and Henry didn't wait around for his brother to reappear. (laughs) We have someone who who is um, 
how can I phrase this? You, 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 his illegitimate children suggest a certain line of interests. He is someone, nonetheless, is a a thoughtful and creative monarch, albeit one with certain desperation for power. But we also yeah. know a little bit about his predilections in terms of food, including the lamprey. What do we know here? This is a story which only appears in one chronicler. And I went back and looked at the chronicler just the other day. And this is a chronicler who probably was right that Henry loved lampreys because people did like them, including kings and queens. And we know this from their records. What is less certain is that that's what he died of, because this is the chronicler who wrote about Canute and the waves. It's a good story, basically, right. I think. <laughs> okay. Well, how does the story go in, in, in the chronicler's terms? The king was staying in Normandy and had fallen out with his daughter, the empress, and his son-in-law over castles in Normandy, basically... They wanted to get hold of the castles, and I think Henry I was hoping to live long enough so that his grandson would be able to take over. So he went hunting in the forest of Lyon, Le Forêt, and he caught some kind of chill, came back from hunting, and his doctor said, no, you mustn't have lampreys. And he said, oh, no, I'm going to have them. And so he became very violently ill and died very fast, as, as people usually did in those days. They didn't hang around. So, I mean, there are alternative possibilities, I guess, are there not? I mean, the yeah. chill, whether there was a problem in, in the preparation of the lamprey it may have been a, a really nasty food poisoning, perhaps. Exactly. And how do you tell kings that they can't have a second helping of their favourite dish? <laughs> I, you know, I shall have difficult. lamprey. Of course, I just. I mean, it's like having a dodgy oyster, isn't it? You take the risk. How were lampreys prepared at that point? What, what was the most common way of consuming the blood-sucking parasite of which we speak? Later medieval cookbooks, there aren't really any for as early as this, but the famous dish is a pie. You put them in a pie, and I, I believe a pie was sent to Queen Elizabeth II when she was crowned in 1953. Oh. But you can stew them. And you can grill them. And in parts of Europe, they are still eaten. I believe that the city of Gloucester gives the monarch a lamprey pie every Christmas. Hi. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a traditional render. And one of the interesting things about Doomsday Book is that a lot of people were paying their rents in eels, not necessarily lampreys, but they were paying them in eels, thousands and thousands of eels. That'll never catch on. <laughs> <laughs> Judith, have you ever, I have to ask this, have you ever eaten lamprey? I've never eaten lampreys, but I lived for many years in Northern Ireland and Loch Ness has both lampreys and eels. And I've certainly had smoked eel from Loch Ness. I think they throw the lampreys back. I don't think they uh, right. smoke the lampreys. And I, it was not something I ever did again. I just tried it once. <laughs> what do we know of it? I mean, what, what is written about the, the taste of the lamprey? I think it's a very rich taste by what I've read. I mean, I think it's a cross between fishy and meat. So a sort of stronger than an, an ordinary eel taste. But of course, eels until recently, uh, were very commonly eaten. And they're still, they're still jelly deals are still eaten, uh, particularly in London. But I think a lot of the ones from Loch Ness go to Europe. They're just shipped straight out. 
The eel is, of course, a remarkable creature for its um, peregrinations. Its migratory habits are extraordinary. Do the lampreys likewise travel vast distances? I don't know about the distances, but they, they do move, don't they, from uh, seawater to freshwater. Uh-huh. And different species are found in freshwater than the marine ones. And they go into, I was reading about this, they go into the sand. And an old way of getting catching lampreys was to stamp. So you stamped on the sand and the, and the, and the lampreys came out and you caught them. <laughs> What a wonderful world it is where you can stab on the beach and produce little blood-sucking <laughs> your food. Yes. <laughs> now, okay, so what we know then about Henry I potentially is that at the very least lamprey was the last meal, you know, whether that was the critical thing. Because do we know that an overconsumption of the lamprey can be injurious? Well, Henry was in his late 60s by this time, and he had been actually remarkably healthy. The only time he's known to have been ill was Christmas 1132, and we don't know what that was about. So he had had a good innings, and it probably wouldn't have taken a great deal to carry him off. So 1135 um, is the yeah is his year of death. What, it is. What, what a wonderful piece of conjecture. Is, is he the only known British monarch to have had a, a food-related end? No, there was a book about 100 years ago called 1066 and all that. Henry I died of a surfeit of lampreys and King John died of a surfeit of peaches. So that was the story about King John. Is that true? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Anything beyond about 1150 and it's it's journalism as far as I'm concerned. Well, Judith, thank you. We're glad that Henry fell within your period. and We've all learned a little here, (laughs) not perhaps with certainty about circumstances of his death, but certainly about the lamprey. And in a moment, we will consider how they might best be cooked. But Judith, for your assistance, thank you so much. Thank you. Judith Green's a professor emeritus of medieval history at the University of Edinburgh. Now, a dish of lampreys. I suggest first catch your lamprey. A little word of warning here, we're about to hear a recipe for lamprey, which for the slightly squeamish or or the less meat-eating inclined could be a tad confronting, so just to bear that in mind. Carlos Afonso is a Portuguese chef and restaurateur, a man who knows his lampreys. Carlos, hello. Hi, Jonathan. Tell us about your connection to lamprey. And about lamprey, so it's very typical from my area. I'm from south of Portugal, but we eat in all countries. So Portugal, it's west, it's west for Atlantic. So half of our coast, it's west. We have a lot of rivers. And this time of the year, the lampreys, they came from the deeps uh, in the ocean and they start to crossing for do the put the eggs and do the reproductions. So... We have a long, long, long tradition uh, tradition mm. for catch them alive, and we prepare uh, a lot of dish. One of the most famous it's arroz de cabidela, so it means like uh, rice, like uh, something like uh, how I can explain to any rice, like uh, s- something similar to risotto. Yeah, that we use the blood of the lamp- the lamprey, and we cook them all. So the lamprey. So you, you use the use the blood to cook the rice. Yes, we use the blood and the red wine to um, parsley, 
onions, garlic, laurel, um, bay leaves, and uh, black pepper. Yep. And uh, we do a, a, like a short marinade, like 10, 12 hours uh, from the night to the day, and then we prepare them. So it's in in the, in the temp. So it's people drive from the north to the south, from the countryside to the west coast to try the lamprey. It's like oh, wow. something. Yeah, for me, I'm a. I love it. So uh, you you've, you've you've cooked you've cooked the rice, but the, the lamprey itself. How, how does that is that cooked in that as like a, a meat in a risotto or how what's what's the process for yeah the, the, the process so the, the first step uh, it's how you prepare the proper lamprey mm-hmm. so the fishermen the the lamprey have to be alive so they have to catch them in the river bring to some aquarius and bring to the and after that bring to the restaurants yep so in the restaurant we receive them alive and very fresh and if you see the mouth of the lamprey, they have um, a lot of teeth in the round mouth. So we put in that part, it's something like our value or something. We put uh, some net and we put them from the head to the tail and start to, we can do in two ways. We can remove the skin. It's a very, very thing. It's very sensitive, sensible thing to do because mm. you have to do it when the animal is alive. Why? Because we want the blood. So when you remove the, the skin, the animal is still alive. So it's a very, if you are sensitive with the animals and everything, it's very difficult. It's not, it's very <laughs> difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, otherwise you can put some, uh, some hot water, boiled water um then the the water the boiled water uh start to cooking some the, the skin and you remove the first skin mm-hmm. with the with the the help of the the kitchen towel or something uh it's the, the two ways how how prepare then you have to put them with the head up the tail down and start to cutting from the on the belly open all the belly with very, very careful because they have a, a vein with a lot of uh, what with a stomach. Yeah, and you, you cannot uh, this vein cannot explode in the liquid inside. Have to be there. Ah, you you need to remove that with care. Yes, 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 yes. Then you cut everything in a in a slices with a, through two or three fingers. Uh, and start to doing the marinade. The head normally you don't use for the the rice, only the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the tail until the head. When the starts the the holes in the head, we keep the head and the people. Normally the fishermen like to grill the head and eat without the girls and everything. Very um, crunchy. So, <laughs> yes, yes. I'll fry. We we eat in a lot of ways. So for the rice, then you cut. In slices, like uh, two two fingers thickness. Um, then you you prepare a marinade with red wine, a bit of vinegar uh, because of the blood and everything. For uh, not coagulate, the vinegar helps. Uh, okay. You put you put the red wine, the onion, red wine, parsley, peppers, bay leaf, 
and uh, let them marinate it for 10, 12 hours. Then you start cooking the rice. How you do the, the rice? Then you chop the uh, onion. You you just start to fry a bit in uh, olive oil. In Portugal, we use olive oil for everything. <laughs> Put a, a pinch of um, garlic. Then you start to cooking the rice. The type of rice we use, it's called carolino. Uh-huh, yep. Carolino, it's a type of rice uh, similar to carnaroli or bomba, mm. but Portuguese rice with very small grain with a lot of uh, starch. We start to cooking. We fry the, the rice a little bit. Then we start to putting the marinade in the rice. So they get the grain start to absorb the, the, the flavors in the marinade and the alcohol goes out and stay the, the flavor. Then we put a, a little bit of uh, uh, vegetable stock or uh, some lightly, lightly fish stock. You put, you cook the rice. And uh, normally the Carolino steals, I don't know, uh, 10, 12 minutes to cook. Mm -hmm. And in the last five minutes, you put the lamprey inside with the eggs and everything. You involved chopped uh, fresh uh, parsley. You put salt, pepper, vinegar. It's very important you put vinegar because they, they have a little bit of fat and gelatin in the lamprey. So the vinegar uh, cuts everything and you put and you put the um, the the parsley chopped involved everything and i swear it's a, a, a dish that you eat and use wet on the <laughs> on your on your on your face starts wet because it's very 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 strong tell very me the, strong. describe for me the taste the tastes uh you feel a lot of vinegar it's very important the vinegar balance the fatness and the strong flavor of the lamprey, uh, you feel the bit of the, the 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 red wine. The color of the rice starts to be brown because you cook the the blood, um, and you have the freshness of mm. the the parsley chopped. So it's not fishy. The texture of lamprey is not fishy. It's like of uh, you already eat ray. You know ray. You are certainly you eat ray. It's like a shark. Okay, okay. The shark doesn't have bo proper bone, a little bit of uh, cartilage. Yeah. So it's th that part with a lot of collagen and everything. So the rice gets very like a risotto, but uh, with a texture, with a lot of collagen, like a glass or something. Mm -hmm. And you eat there with the... Yeah, you then you eat and drink a very red wine or a very very nice uh, white wine with oak, and I've, I swear you, I eat only one or two times a, a year because it's very it's a special thing. It's, it's a special thing. <laughs> what, it's what, very what, expensive what, also in Portugal. What do you call that dish? Uh, arroz de lampreia, risotto of lampreia. I don't like the the word risotto because risotto it's. Uh, It's a traditional dish in Italy. It's risotto. Mm. But in Portugal, we eat a lot of rice. We have a lot of rice. We are a, 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 a special country that have amazing dishes with rice. And uh, we call this, in Portuguese, it's arroz malandrinho lampreia. It sounds an extraordinary dish, Carlos. Thank you so much for, for describing that wonderful recipe. 
Yes, um, thank you for, for, for the invitation. It's, uh, I invite you when you are around Portugal, uh, you can go to Oito, my restaurant, if you're booking or send me a message. And uh, Carlos, I want to try Lamprio. Lampre <laughs> it have to be January to March because it's a small, it's uh, a small, small season. season. Yes. Carlos, thank you. Uh, that was Portuguese chef Carlos Afonso. Now, here's, here's some uh, big and important news. It's almost time for that. I think it's an annual event that you all rather look forward to. I know I do. It's RN's Big Weekend of Books. Uh, now, here's a save the date notice for you. It's coming up. It's on your, on your radio and on the ABC Listen app on Saturday the 17th and Sunday the 18th of June. 10 to 5 p.m. each day, so make a note of that. But time now on Blueprint for Living for an icon. That, that can mean but one thing, the imminent arrival of Colin Bissett. For a city that was once very briefly the capital of Italy, Turin is often overlooked which is a shame because it's simply brimming with architectural wonders, including one of the most bizarre, the Mole Antonelliana. The German philosopher Nietzsche thought it perhaps the most ingenious building ever constructed. The word Mole means building of great size, and Antonelliana refers to its architect Alessandro Antonelli. What he created looks more like fantasy than reality. It starts conventionally enough, a solid masonry base facing a narrow street in the centre of the city, classically detailed with columns and porticos. But as it moves upward, it becomes odder, with an almost excessive run of columns around a tower that is then topped by a strange elongated dome like a simplified version of Brunelleschi's great dome in Florence. This is topped by a dainty tempietto, and then, and here's the true oddness, an immense spire reaches far up into the sky, taking the overall height of the building to nearly 170 metres. When it was completed in 1889, it was briefly the tallest structure in Europe, until the Eiffel Tower stole the title that same year. More incredible, perhaps, is its lack of metal framing, that height putting extraordinary stress on the humble brick from which much of it is constructed. Equally surprising is how it was commissioned as a synagogue following the unification of Italy in 1861. Turin had been the seat of the kings of the House of Savoy since the 11th century and was chosen now as the capital of the new nation. The Jewish community, which until only a few decades earlier had occupied a ghetto within the city and been subjected to strict laws, thought this would be the ideal time to celebrate and assert their presence in the city. Primo Levi, the chemist from Turin who wrote so eloquently about his experience in Auschwitz some 80 years later, said it would have been like a giant exclamation mark on the urban landscape. 
the building would have offices and a school on the lower floors with a vast hall above reaching up into the dome and able to hold 1,500 people. But that never came to pass. As more states joined the new Italy, Florence took over as the capital and then Rome. It no longer made sense having the grandest synagogue in Italy here. There was also the question of cost, given that Antonelli couldn't be dissuaded from building the outrageous spire. The city council took over, covering what had been spent and giving a parcel of land elsewhere on which a synagogue, in the Moorish style, was built, another of Turin's architectural treasures. The Mole was now dedicated to Victor Emmanuel II, the first king of Italy, who'd been born in Turin. From 1908 it was home to a unification museum, but it's now the National Museum of Cinema, an apt use given this is an epic building. In 1961 a lift was installed to carry visitors to a viewing terrace above the strange dome. It rises through the centre of the building entirely free of any enclosing shaft. Instead, the wires dangle freely in the air, giving the occupants of the glass cabin an unobstructed view of the interior as they ascend. If buildings say something about the city in which they stand, then the Mole speaks of a city filled with creativity and invention, famous for its coffee, luscious hazelnut chocolate and Fiat cars, the company that had itself a test track on its factory rooftop. It's also a symbol of significant changes in Italy's history. So if Turin is overlooked today, then there's surely no better place from which to overlook it. Colin, thank you. Uh, all Colin's icons, and what, a, what marvels they be, uh, they're all gathered for you at the ABC Listen app, which is where you will find all the things we do here at Blueprint for your listening pleasure at your pleasure. Uh, but we'll be back for a fresh batch, same time next time. I'm Jonathan Green. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.